Well, good morning, Door Creek. Hey, if you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team here, and we're really glad that you joined us this weekend right before Christmas. Speaking of Christmas, just a huge shout out to those of you who packed and wrapped and brought presents for our Christmas stores. So over 500 kids and parents were able to benefit from that, meaning we had a real part in actually helping some of our own neighbors right here in our backyard actually have a Christmas. So thanks, thanks for doing that. Those are all connected, those Christmas stores, to our partner schools scattered around Madison and the surrounding community. So thank you so much. Speaking of that, Mike mentioned the Christmas offering. So for the last 10 plus years, We've made a commitment to each other to not go crazy, right? To spend less on ourselves, to give more to people in need, keeping the focus on Christ, and sharing God's love to the most vulnerable people that live here and across the way in the states and then across the seas in places like Haiti and Honduras and Rwanda. So in the last years that we've been doing this, we've given over a million dollars all of it outside of the church. And that's been part of your contagious generosity. We have an opportunity to do that again this year. Our goal is 130,000, so it's a big goal. And yet it's going to great causes from feeding homeless families here this Christmas season through River Food Pantry to continuing our partnerships with local schools and actually adding to those partnerships. We're gonna be doing great work in Haiti with our adopted school in the little village of Zoranje. We are gonna be packing this year, not 60, but 90,000 meals, which will feed them for more than a year. That's awesome. We're gonna be helping Mission of Hope develop a new library for children. We're gonna be doing lots of good in Rwanda where Mark Deering and I are gonna be in a little over a month. We're gonna be eyes on the ground and seeing all the ways that God is using these wonderful pastors, 70 plus, and these 70 plus churches that are serving about 30,000 people in the Goma area of Rwanda, and they don't have a lot. And our partnership with World Relief is bringing not only the hope of the gospel, but the tangible grace of Christ through lots of things, whether it's educational or health, agricultural, microfinance. So these are some of the things that our Christmas offering is going to. I know a lot of us are gonna be bringing friends and family and neighbors to it. I just want you to know, we'll make it clear. This is an offering for the church family. So we're excited about that. Wanna remind you as you think about worshiping on Tuesday, Christmas Eve, to uh, bring that special gift. If you're not here, and traveling for Christmas, you can always give that online or drop it off and mark it Christmas offering in the offering boxes. So there's a big game in town, if we consider Milwaukee town, and I guess we can. So uh, big game, the Lakers and the Bucks played, the two teams with the, the, uh, the best records in the NBA, and if you didn't hear, you know, Giannis and the Bucks took it, it was great. But during that game, Nike unveiled a commercial, and it was all about LeBron. It was called Beginnings. And in this commercial, um, you've got um, LeBron talking about kind of his own life and the stories that we love to hear. Let me just read you the script. It goes like this. We always hear about an athlete's humble beginnings, 
how they emerge from poverty or, tra or tragedy to beat the odds. They're supposed to be the stories of determination that capture the American dream. They're supposed to be stories that let you know that these people are special. But you know what would be really special? Camera focuses in on LeBron. If there were no more humble beginnings. I think we know what he's talking about, right? No more kids growing up in poverty, having to overcome tragedy, feeling like their lives are stacked against the odds, a world where all kids grow up knowing that they're special. And in this short one-minute commercial, I think LeBron is just tapping into the longings of the human heart that have been longings all the way back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were ushered out of that beautiful, perfect place, the Garden of Eden, longing for a better day, longing for a better world. So I'm listening to this commercial, preparing for this message, and I'm going, wow. Actually, humble beginnings is exactly how the Christmas story unfolds. And we've been looking at Christmas in Isaiah, so grab your Bible, Isaiah chapter 52. We'll pick it up in verse 13 and head through the uh, remainder of that chapter and on through the 12 verses of chapter 53. So as, as you look for Isaiah, it's a little to the right of middle. Use your table of contents. So let me just kind of set up where we're going here. We're gonna talk a little bit about the expectations that God's people have had from you know, from God's word as he's been talking about this promised savior and showing that their, their expectations are actually incomplete and there's something going to happen here in Isaiah 53 that brings new light and that's gonna be Isaiah 53 which is gonna just have us encounter the surprise and the surprising nature and life and mission and death and victory of this servant he calls him. And then we'll wrap it up by looking at some implications for our lives today. See there in 52 verse 13? See, my servant will act wisely. Same word for prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. At the end of chapter 52, he's giving us a summary of the servant. This is new language for the Messiah. He's been called a son, a king. And now Isaiah enters this new language and this metaphor of this king is gonna be a servant. He's gonna come and he's gonna serve. And he tells us that he's gonna serve and he's gonna be highly exalted and through his service that he actually is gonna sprinkle many nations. And we're going, what does that mean? He's gonna get the hose out and wash the cars? What's going on here? So sprinkling is an allusion back to what the high priest did once a year on the Day of Atonement, Exodus 16 where he would sacrifice the bull, take the blood of the bull. He'd walk in through the holy place to the holy of holies, only entered in one time a year, only by the high priest. And he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it over the altar, symbolic of God's very holy presence. 
offering this sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. So the question is, so how is this servant who, uh, when, we, when we look at verse 13, you know, this one who's appalled and his appearance is disfigured and he's marred behind human likeness, how is this one gonna do that kind of work? How is this one gonna be raised up and exalted? And the answer is surprisingly that we see in Isaiah 53 is through his sufferings. God's savior is gonna be praised and exalted and he's gonna forgive many nations through his sufferings. So let's just talk a little bit about the expectations to this point in biblical revelation. So when you go all the way back to the first word of promise, Genesis 3.15, what we hear is, Eve, you're going to have a son. He's going to crush the enemy's head like that. Then you go a little further, Genesis chapter 12. Oh, he's going to be Abraham's son, who's going to bring blessing to all the families of the world. Love that. Then we move a little forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. He's going to be David's son. David is the great king who's extended the boundaries of God's people. They're living in peace, and it's like beautiful, but he's going to have even a better son because he's going to set up something that lasts forever, and he's going to reign forever. That's in 2 Samuel. Then you move ahead, and we get to places like Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, he's going to be a son, right? But he's also going to be born of a virgin. This is miraculous. This can't just happen. And, and by the way, he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 9, the government's going to be on his shoulder. Who's he going to be? He's going to be the son who is called. This is the nature of his work and of who he is. A wonderful counselor, a mighty God. Well, we want that mighty God. An everlasting father, someone who provides and protects. And the prince of peace, loving that. Chapter 40, verse 10, he's coming with power. Chapter 42, filled with the Spirit, bringing justice to the earth for a people like Israel, who their long history is that of oppression, going all the way back to Egypt, and then from all the ites that they face surrounding them in the, in the land of Canaan, the promised land, to Assyria, and Babylon, and Persia, and in Jesus' day, Rome. Everywhere they went, they saw something that reminded them they weren't free. They were under the tyranny of Rome. So they were longing for this conquering king. But Isaiah's already hinted by the time we get to chapter 52 that there's going to be more to this king, more to this servant. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 5, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. This is uh, prophecy concerning Christ. Open my ears is the mark, uh, it's the language of a bondservant, someone who willingly indentured themselves to someone else and they would have their ear pierced. You've opened my ear, Father. I'm yours, I belong to you. He goes on to say, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So right about now, I better remind us of something because it's, it's not intuitive. The prophets use the past tense to talk about the future to remind us so sure is God's word. So much can you bank on it. When they talk about the future, they use the past tense. That would not work 
in our, in our English grammar class and test. But this is how God has worked the grammar of his revelation so it impresses us that when he talks about the future, it's as if it's already happened. So sure, God's word. So they're longing for this promised king. Very likely, they're longing for external, physical deliverance, not understanding that the Savior is going to bring that and more. In fact, there's a greater need than to be rescued from an enemy. And we'll see that as things unfold. So when we get to chapter 53, we now get to the surprising Savior and his salvation. So look at verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This divine savior is described as the arm of the Lord. Go to 52, verse 10. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The holy arm is his power to deliver, his strength to deliver. This is this coming servant, suffering savior. We go on. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So he's starting to unpack his, his beginnings, his nature, his life. And as we go through this chapter, you guys, this is wild because remember this is written 700 years before Christ ever shows up. 700 years. And we're gonna learn about his birth, we're going to learn about his nature. We're going to learn about his work and his mission, his death, his resurrection, all here in Isaiah 53. So this is the gospel of the Old Testament. So he's the arm of the Lord. He's divine, but he's also human and frail, a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground. He, this is like... He's, he's not significant. This is just a, a tender root. This is so fragile. He's not likely to make it. This root out of dry ground, the potential here is not great. Doesn't look like what we'd think would be the coming of a savior. His life is common, right? He's a common man. He's an ordinary guy. He's not the guy, if we were signing, you know, our yearbooks together that we'd say most likely to succeed. No, he's just like, you know, it's the guy that, you know, you go to your 10th year reunion, you go, wow, she's what? He's what? I just had no idea. He's a commoner. He didn't catch anybody's attention. Yancey speaks of this very thing in his classic book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And in it, he talks about this forged document that at its beginnings was alleged to be that which was published describing Jesus' physical appearance in the first century by a guy named Publius Lentulus, the Roman governor who succeeded Pontius Pilate, the guy who had Jesus crucified. Actually, the truth is it was a forgery. It was written in the 1500s. But here's how Jesus' physical appearance was described. 
Enjoy this. He's a tall man, well-shaped, and of amiable and reverend aspect. His hair is of a color that can hardly be matched, falling into graceful curls, parted on the crown of his head, running as a stream to the front after the fashion of the Nazarites. His forehead high, large, and imposing. His cheeks without spot or wrinkle, beautiful with a lovely red. His his nose and mouth formed with exquisite symmetry. His beard of a color suitable to his hair, reaching below his chin and parted in the middle like a fork. Hmm. (laughs) His eyes bright blue and serene. Now go back to chapter 53 and look at verse 2. What does it say? He had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Talk about the ultimate undercover boss. God, wrapped in human flesh, we first see him lying where? In a feeding trough. Not what we expected the surprising savior and salvation of our great God. His reception and reputation, nothing like the courts of heaven. We're well familiar with this passage, some of us, in Isaiah chapter six, where in the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, the train of his robe, filling the temple, and the angels, the seraphims, were flying around, they were saying to each other, before the presence of God, holy, holy is the Lord God. And when John writes about this very historical event in Isaiah's life, he says in John chapter 12, 41, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. This one who's always existed. The radiant son of God who will light up heaven for eternity. This is the one who's completely taken on this insignificant personage, this humble calling. What a surprise. No seeming potential, no markings of greatness, no reputation and and reception. He, He was rejected, he was despised, a man of sorrow and suffering and pain. And we held him in low esteem, an insignificant nobody a surprising savior indeed, whose mission in life is just as surprising as it all culminates at the cross. And he's gonna talk about this. Check it out in verse four, surely. And what I want you to notice here is how the scriptures unfold that the work of this suffering savior is gonna be a work that he does for us in our place, taking on our sin. And I want you to just see how many times he talks about that. Verse four, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. That's exactly what the le- religious leaderships thought. This guy had committed blasphemy. He claims to be God. And that's why they put him on a cross. And so they thought he was getting what he deserved. Listen, verse five. But he was pierced. Hands and feet, right? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, 
the suffering servant, Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Speaking of the trial, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, speaking of his death, for the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So notice the verbs. Let me just review them. These are the things that Christ intentionally did for us. He took, he bore, was pierced, crushed, oppressed, punished, afflicted. Verse four, our pain, our suffering. Verse five, our transgressions. Verse five again, our iniquities. Verse 10, our sin, 11, our iniquities. Verse 12, bore the sins of many. And this isn't just Old Testament teaching. This permeates all of scripture. So we read this in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for who? For us, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You notice in verses seven and eight, allusions to the unjust trial and his purposeful death, treated unjustly, oppressed and judged. It was a bogus kangaroo court. They couldn't find witnesses to agree. Trumped up the charges. But Isaiah would say, but he did not open his mouth. Peter in 1 Peter 2.23 talks about Isaiah 53 at this very point, And he says this, he says, actually what's going on here is Jesus made no threats, uttered no curses. He entrusted himself to God. So he's cut off to die for our sins, treated like a criminal. Remember, it says he, he would die the death of the wicked. Well, he hung between two what? Remember? Thieves. They were treating him. They were going to bury him just out where nobody is buried. Nobody knows who these people are. Out on some, but then there was this guy. Remember him, Joseph? Here's what Matthew says about Joseph, Matthew 27, 57. So this is the night Jesus is crucified. As evening approached, there came a rich man, underlying rich man. He'd be buried with the, what did Isaiah say? With the rich. He'd have a, a, he'd be treated like a criminal, but he'd be buried with the rich. Evening approach, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the religious elites. He's part of the Sanhedrin, but he's been a secret follower of Jesus. So now he comes out and it says in Matthew 27, verse 58, that he goes to Pilate, he says, Pilate, I would like permission to take Jesus' body and give him a burial. And Pilate says, is he really dead yet? He says, he's dead. Permission granted. He takes the body down. He wraps him in a cloth and it says he laid him in his newly hewn tomb, his tomb on his property. 
The specificity here of the scriptures and the prophecies around Christ blow our mind. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. We also see that in verse 11 and 12, we have an allusion not just to his death, but to his resurrection and the victory. So look back at 53 verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Oh, before that, look at the back half of 10. He will see his offspring, right, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper. After he has suffered, he will see the light of light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, here's the victory. I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils. That's what the victor does. Divide the spoils with the strong. And why is he victorious? Here's this paradox again. Upside down way of God because he poured out his life unto death. Ha. This is why Paul says we preach Christ and him crucified in Corinthians. And he says, when we do, you got to understand that that's a stumbling block to the Jew. And it's just foolishness to the Gentiles, all the rest. How in the world could the Messiah, the conquering king who establishes righteousness and justice on earth, do it in this manner? He cannot be because the scriptures are clear. Cursed is anyone, Deuteronomy says, that hangs on a tree, that hangs on a pole. He's cursed. And Galatians would tell us he was cursed on our behalf to free us from the curse. And what we notice here clearly in verse 10, at the beginning of the verse, at the end of the verse, it's all God's will and plan. And so fast forward 700 some years when Peter's talking to the people in Jerusalem, the Spirit's fallen on the disciples. They're, they're speaking in other known languages about the glory and mysteries of God. And people think they're drunk. And he says, they're not drunk. These things are happening in fulfillment of the scriptures. And as Peter goes on and talks about it, he makes it clear that this one that you handed over is actually not just Jesus of Nazareth. He is the promised Messiah. And in handing him over, he didn't get caught in some twist of fate between your jealous leaders and the Roman power. No, he actually uses this language, Acts 2.26. This was God's, 2.23, God's deliberate plan. This is his will. This is his will. Because this was the way and the only way to deal with the rebellion of the human heart that mucked it all up with God, with each other, and all the created world that we live in. God's plan. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. It was the Lord, verse 6, who laid on Christ the sin of us all. 300 years before Isaiah, you doing the math? Now we're about 1,000 years B.C., King David. That's kind of an easy reference. David's 1,000 years B.C. King David writes this about Jesus' crucifixion. We know Jesus is meditating on Psalm 22 because on the cross, he utters the very beginning words of the song. Psalms are songs. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how Psalm 22 
begins. In verse 16, notice the specificity of this prophecy. A thousand years now, he's describing in, in the future what happened at, around the cross. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display, hung naked. People stare and gloat over me, and worse. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And Matthew will record that that's exactly what happened, Matthew 27, 35. That that was the only thing that Jesus had that was of value, humanly speaking. Where they said, let's not tear this thing up because it'll not have value. So whoever gets the high roll, they cast their lots. Exactly as the scriptures said. So God's plan was to send the son who came in the most surprising fashion. How should a king come? Not like that. Not like that. He came that he might take on our sin. And what he brings that we see here is he brings peace and forgiveness and healing. And he makes those who are rebellious, dumb sheep who just wander off on their own outside of the protective care of the shepherd. We've done that metaphorically to God, really. He says he makes, he makes rebellious sheep into sons and daughters, his offspring. And so there's an interesting thing. I don't know if you saw it. We've gone through it too quick. Go back to 5215. He will sprinkle many nations. 53, 11. He will justify and carry the sins of many. Again in verse 12. It reminds us of Jesus when he said of his mission, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And so the question is, so who are the many that receive God's peace and forgiveness and salvation? And Isaiah's gonna say, it's a smaller group of people who have this kind of a response to the Savior. And he'll talk about it in 55. We don't have time to get into it. But it opens up with these words, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. What he's saying is, recognize that as you come to this one who made you and love you and wants to redeem you back into relationship to enjoy the blessings that you were made for, you need to understand that you don't have anything to bring. There's no money in this exchange. This is grace. By grace, you've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You come empty-handed, knowing your need. And you listen, verse 2 and 3, which means you obey. You seek the Lord. You call on him before it's too late. Verse 6, you forsake. You turn away. You confess your rebellion. For the Israelites in Isaiah's day, that means you turn away from your religious rituals that were worthless and empty. You turn away from these idols that you've mixed in with the worship of Yahweh. You turn away from all the injustice as you trash the most vulnerable and you seek me with your whole heart and you turn to me and you trust in him. This is God's salvation. And for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. And so this is the many 
This is the answer to, so how do you get this peace and forgiveness and healing? What is our hope as we look around the universe and go, how is this ever going to be made straight and right? It's through Christ. And so our ultimate worship of Christ this Christmas is to recognize him for who he is, to understand that we need it. I mean, what we're hearing here is sin is a big deal that God would send his only son and not just come with this message of God's love, but actually come with the demonstration of his love as he would take on human flesh, live in, grow up in poverty, live in obscurity, 30 years, nobody knows much about him, except he's the carpenter's son, it's Joseph and Mary, yeah, we know about him in Nazareth, nowhere else. Then he shows up, and what does he do? He makes a beeline to the cross for you and me. What does Isaiah say at the beginning of 53? Who has believed our message? Have you believed this message that saves? God's suffering servant who came to take away my sin and give me his perfect character that I might know God and live for him. So three quick implications. The first is on the word of God. So we've just, we've just dipped into the shallows of prophetic words of God about his Savior that start in Genesis 3.15 and we've caught up with it and we've seen the specifics fulfilled in detail. And we need to tremble at God's word. That's what he says, Isaiah says, the people that have God's favor are humble and contrite and tremble. They have a sense of wonder and awe and reverence over God's word. Guys, this isn't any other book. There's nothing else like this. 40 authors over 1,500 years writing in all these different locations and places, predominantly in Hebrew and Greek and a little Aramaic, and it all holds together. And we should just understand and have great confidence and continue to pay attention and trust and take God at his word that always does its work. He's gonna talk about it in chapter 55. It's just like rain and snow. And when the rain and snow comes, it helps things grow. And God's word will not return empty. It'll accomplish its purposes to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, to point us to the Savior, to know how we can live like the Savior. There's implications for the paradox of God's way. Everything's upside down in his kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? The first will be what? Last. Remember about the last? They'll be first. You wanna go up and be great? How, what do you gotta do? You gotta go down and serve. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Little child. Everything's upside down. And we're seeing this, the paradox of God's kingdom. He'll say the same thing in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. He says, my ways are so much higher than your ways. Higher than the heavens are above the earth. So are my ways above your ways. But we, not, we, we don't just want to understand the, the, this whole thing about there's victory through death that there's strength and exaltation through suffering. We don't want to just understand this. We need to embrace the paradox because we're followers of Jesus. And so this is what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 5. 
He said this, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Not so that we just think it, so that we live what we think. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And guys, that's our call. That's what greatness looks like. Most people who ran into Jesus didn't think he was anything. But Jesus knew who he was. He knew what he was about. He knew he had the Father's pleasure, and he kept on going. And you might feel like, man, nobody knows. This is, I'm just this regular, this regular Susie. I'm this regular Joe. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. You just need to find yourself in Christ, that you're his daughter, that you're his son, that you have his approval as you seek to live a life that patterns after Christ. And in pursuing and embracing this pattern, we come along this unbelievable surprise that there's fullness in our life when we take on a life of service. When we give our life away back to God and back to others, we find our lives. And then there's a final implication, and that is, if the people in Jesus' day who had the scriptures, who were looking for the Savior, missed Jesus, is it possible that we could go through another Christmas and actually miss the Savior? That we could be looking for parts of his saving work, not understanding our fundamental need at a heart level of our saving work. That we've got all these forces against us and we want deliverance from those things, but don't understand fundamentally what we need first and foremost is this taken care of. So there's this really interesting story from the life of General Grant. Ron Chernow, in his recent biography titled Grant, talks about Grant, he, you know, he's just a store clerk. Nobody knew who Grant was until he becomes this great Union general. It's the fall of 1863. Victories at Vicksburg, Chattanooga behind him. All of a sudden, man, he's in the spotlight. Anybody who was somebody wants to know and get near this guy. So the uh, Secretary of War is a guy named Ed, Edwin Stanton. He's going to Louisville, and on his way, he wants to meet Grant. He's never met Grant. He's communicated via telegraph. And so the author describes that encounter, that meeting. Short of breath, asthmatic, snuffling with a heavy cold, the short, stout Stanton barged brusquely into Grant's car, eyed the officers present, and then began to pump the hand of a bearded man with an army hat whom he assumed was Grant. How do you do, General Grant, he cried. I recognize you from the pictures. Stanton was embarrassed to learn he was shaking hands with, the Grant, with Grant's medical director, Dr. Edward Kiteau. Stanton later admitted that in guessing which officer was Grant, he had eliminated the real Grant because he looked much too ordinary and wasn't the prepossessing figure he had imagined. Let's not miss Christ this Christmas. And as we embrace the paradox of greatness in servanthood, 
may we more and more be positioned to help those that we work with and play with and study with and do life in our communities with as we point them to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to miss your Savior. And we realize that the greatest miss could be our own pride. And we actually don't think sin's a big deal. Thanks for reminding us how we are incapable of dealing with that. Help us not to miss your Savior as we seek to follow him and live for him. By your Spirit, help us to embrace the paradox of what it means to follow your Son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.